to Totally Lit, a monthly podcast celebrating all things words. If you love reading, writing or creating books and stories, this is the podcast for you. I'm your host, Kai. Thank you for listening. Hi, everybody. How are you doing in isolation? I've lost track of day, week, month. I'm sort of (laughs) spinning around in circles. I hope everybody else is coping okay. I've been keeping myself busy with my day job, um, but also trying to squeeze in all my creative activities in in the uh, cracks, Um, sometimes successfully, sometimes not. First off, I'd like to announce our winner of the uh, Elisa Darlison competition, uh, our 25 words or less. The lucky winner is Natalie Horton. She sent through a very cute 25 words or less entry speedy Susie the snail small enough to be invisible strong enough to be invincible codename agent escargot she evades capture with her slippery slime Uh, Natalie has also sent through a very cute uh, illustration of Susie as well which I'll pop up on the uh, socials so that everyone can see that so congratulations Natalie there'll be a uh, book on its way out to you I'll make contact um, so my first guest for this month is the wonderful Tino Rafa Mulligan. We've had a wonderful chat about her new book, Manelli and Me. She's doing a, an online tour of her book at the moment. Unfortunately, due to restrictions, she couldn't go out and uh, see everyone face-to-face, but there's been lots of activities online. Tina writes whimsical and quirky stories for children of all ages and fun, flirty romances. Her writing life has also included a long career in journalism, during which she has written countless articles on all manner of subjects and edited magazines, anthologies and newspapers. She now spends her days creating stories and sharing her passion for books and writing by presenting writing sessions to encourage children and adults to explore the world of their imagination. So here's my chat with Tina. Welcome Tina to Totally Lit. Thank you for being my guest this month. And thank you for inviting me. Are you able to tell me about your latest book that you've got coming out at the moment? Yes, sure. It's a young adult novel. It's called Monelli and Me, and it's about a girl who answers the phone one day to someone who says he's her father, and she's had no idea that the person she calls dad is not her biological father. No one's ever given her any clue, and she discovers that her mother has been keeping secrets So you can imagine what sort of a response she will have to that and particularly when she discovers that he's coming to Perth from Brisbane, he wants to get to know her and he wants her to go back to Brisbane with him because his mother, her grandmother, has uh, been given a pretty poor prognosis to recover from cancer and she wants to get to know her only granddaughter before it's too late. Right. Lots of option for drama. It does sound drama-filled. Um, and what age group is it aimed for, Tina? I, I would say probably 14 to 18, though the few adults who've read it have said they enjoyed it. So hopefully anyone 14 and over. And where did you get the inspiration for your story? That's an interesting question because this particular book has been a long time evolving. I wrote the first version 
way, way back, 33 years ago I've worked out, when my daughter and her cousin joined the local junior theatre workshop and I decided I was going to write a play that would give Avril and Nikki an opportunity to play lead roles. So I just thought, okay, let's put a teenage girl in the story, let's give her a best friend and let's confront her with an issue that throws her world upside down. So basically, that's how it came about. The play was never produced. I entered it in a competition and got some wonderful feedback from the judges who said that I had an ability to write and could keep writing, but that I didn't know enough about stagecraft and also the responses of the characters to some major information wasn't um, realistic enough. It was a bit too bland. So I put the play away and I carried on writing picture books and chapter books and novels and goodness knows what else and working in journalism and forgot about it for years and years and years. Will I continue? <laughs> what made you go back to the story? I had been working for a local newspaper and I had gone to interview novelist Anna Jacobs about one of her books and we had already met before and we became friends. I used to go and have lunch with her every six weeks or so because she lived around the corner from where I worked and she happened to mention she was starting up a critique group and she invited me to join. And speaking to her about her novels reminded me that I had always had this dream of, of writing novels rather than all the sorts of different short things I'd been writing. So I joined the critique group and there were about half a dozen of us and everyone was very serious about writing. And I decided I would transform this play into a young adult novel. So that's what I did. And how did you feel getting that original critique where they were saying that your responses were not realistic to them? Did you take that to heart or did you um, make those changes later on? At the time, I thought, what? That's how I would react. But the more I thought about it, the more I realised that not everyone is the same and how you imagine you might react is not necessarily how you would. And by the time I came to reworking it as a young adult novel, I'd been writing for a very long time and I'd, I'd learnt a lot more about writing craft. So taking another look at it, I realised that there were lots of areas I could improve on. And obviously the story changed as well because I had to introduce subplots and more characters and expand on everything that was happening. Plus I changed the perspective because I've written Monelli and Me in first person from Kate's point of view. And what sort of feedback are you getting so far from people that are reading it? So far I've had an amazing review that really looked at in depth and compared it to 
looking for Ali Brandy. Well, that's what I was thinking of when you were describing it to me. So that that's a good compliment because that's been a very successful book. It has. And it's also interesting because I'm a member of Squibby West and each year we have a Rottnest retreat and invite a couple of publishers over and you can sit down and have a one-on-one critique and submit the first 10 pages plus um, a synopsis of something that you're working on. And one year I did submit the first 10 pages of this particular novel and the synopsis and the publisher said, when you market it, market it as looking for Ali Brandy for a new generation. And, of course, I never did that because I thought, oh, I can't do that. Uh, looking for Ali Brandy is such a famous book. How can I mm-hmm. compare mine to that? And and have you had some help with how to market the book to set it as, apart from looking for Ali Brandy? Uh, no, I have booked a virtual tour, an online tour with Books on Tour with Romy Sharp. I've done a couple of online tours with her before and she does an amazing job. So I thought, okay, I'll just book an online tour. So I've done various guest posts and interviews and just going to see what happens with it. I must admit I prefer writing stories and making books than actually going out and trying to get people to read them and buy them. I agree. Did you have certain themes in mind when you were writing the novel that you wanted to convey to teens or was it just a story that was close to your heart? I suppose I like exploring relationships. So whenever I'm writing anything, I don't set out with a particular theme. But when I look at everything I've written over many years, I see that often it's about finding your place, belonging, friendship and family. I don't have the sort of relationships in my family that Kate had in hers. I mean, I grew up in a in a really stable family, mum, dad, brother and sister, no secrets there. And the same with my family. So I I really just like exploring how people react and interact with each other in certain circumstances. Yeah, I think it um, resonates with teens, those relationships, because not not every teenager has the same family life. And especially these days, there's more and more dual families where where teenagers are living with their mums and dads in separate homes. And um, it's almost becoming, um, I guess, standard. So it is, I guess, a theme that would I think, resonate with teenagers. I think so. And also, too, when we are teenagers, we're very much trying to find out who we are. Uh, Even if you're in a, a very settled family and you know you're loved, it's still a big drive to look at where you might belong in the world and what sort of person you will be. So anything that explores that is going to connect with teens. It, it's interesting. Growing up, I, I was an only child and I often used to have a dream that I had a like a secret older brother. <laughs> so it's, it's interesting how your mind works that you, you're not all... Even when you've got a nice stable home, you're always thinking of something different or wondering what if the grass is greener, if you had a different situation. 
Yes, definitely. I I do have a younger brother, but I always thought it would lovely to ha- be lovely to have a sister. So <laughs> so there you go. Now you have another book coming out as well, a picture book. Do you want to tell me a little about that? Okay, Solo Dan is coming out, I believe, in November. It's been illustrated by Kim Langfield. It's published by Daisy Lane Publishing, who also published my picture book, When the Moon is a Smile, last year. And again, it's a story about belonging. Dan is a foster kid. He's been moving from family to family and bouncing around from home to home like a ball that no one can catch all his life and he convinces himself that that's okay with him who needs brothers their trouble who needs pets their their trouble too etc etc but underneath it all he desperately wants a forever home so again belonging a place where you belong a place where you feel like you can be yourself it comes through all the time And what prompted you to write about that topic, Tina? That one started with a dream. I woke up one morning and the story was in my mind and at that time it it was called I Don't Have an Uncle and it started like that originally. So it's changed a bit along the way, of course, because first drafts often do change. But that was that was what prompted that. It was a dream. And do you have anything new that you're working on or that will be coming out soon? Uh, that's the next one to come out. And I also have another picture book that is going to be in production soon. The illustrator, Amy Kalauti, who did When the Moon is a Smile, she'll be illustrating my picture book, Looking After Grandma. And that will be coming out with Serenity Press either the end of this year or sometime early next year. And that one was inspired by my mother's journey with dementia and I wrote it a long time ago before all the other books about grandparents with dementia came onto the market and at the time when I sent it out to publishers a lot of them said that they didn't think there'd be a big enough market for it so I put it away and Serenity Press has had it for I think about five years and other projects came ahead of it. And Karen, the publisher, told me early this year that she still wanted to put it out. So that's going to be happening. Uh, In terms of writing, I am well into a middle-grade novel, and that one is a bit quirky. It's about a kid who finds a strange object and begins changing colour. And he can't let mum know because she's very protective. And if she finds out that this is happening, she'll whiz him off to doctors and scientists and goodness knows who. And um, he won't get to go to his first ever school camp. Oh, no, that would be terrible. Of course. <laughs> so is that does that have a little bit of a sci-fi tinge to it all? Yes, definitely. I've had uh, two middle-grade novels published before and they've, they've both got kind of sci-fi fantasy quirky themes to them so I it must have been a stage I was going through I think I was directly inspired by my son when he was a kid 
and he's definitely not a kid anymore. <laughs> and you also write romance, Tina, is that right? Yes, a few years ago I was invited by Karen at Serenity Press to submit a short romance to their anthology, Rocky Romance, and I hadn't really thought of myself as a romance writer, but I was talked into giving it a go, and it was fun. I wrote a short story called Perhaps Love about a romance author who couldn't find love in her own life and didn't believe in happy ever after, and it was well received. It's it's light and um, fluffy and I suppose you'd call it a bit of a rom-com. And so that was fun. So I did another one and another one and another one. So so I've got a new one coming out in an anthology with Gumnut Press in, oh, the end of this month, 29th of April. And that anthology is called Poor Prince of Love. And there are dogs in all of it and my story is inspired by our dog Chloe who's a gorgeous golden Labrador that we got four years ago and she has a toast obsession and anxiety issues oh (laughs) poor puppy (laughs) yeah she's gorgeous Okay, Tina. Um, now uh, with every interview I have a little quick fire question segment so I'll ask you five questions. The first one is, what was your favourite book growing up? Ooh, probably The Secret Garden. Oh, that's a lovely one, isn't it? Yeah, I, lo- I loved it. Um, if you could be any book character, who would it be? Easy, Mary Poppins. <laughs> um, what are you reading right now? I have just started a new book and it's by Fiona Lloyd, and it's called Birthright. And I'm only about two chapters in. I'm thoroughly enjoying what I've read so far. And I just finished reading a book called Jane in Love, and that was a great read. It had an interesting concept. Jane Austen comes into the future and has to choose between staying here and being in love or going back to her own time and writing all her books. Just sign her up to Tinder and she'll be going right back home again, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Probably. Now, if you could invite five literary people to dinner, who would they be? Ooh, Eckhart Tolle, Mm -hmm. Danny Shapiro, um, Julia Cameron, Natalie Goldberg, and I've got one left, haven't I? Ooh, who would that be? All of the Bronte sisters, so I'm going to be cheering <laughs> for have a, have a big party at your place. It sounds like it would be very interesting conversation over dinner. Very much. Okay, and what advice would you give yourself if you could go back to the beginning of your writing journey? Connect with other writers sooner. Um, goodness. I don't know that I would have been able to do anything any differently because I was always convinced that I was going to be a writer, that I was going to be published, and I had so many knockbacks along the way, and I just kept going. So, yes, connecting with other writers would have made it easier. I I maybe wouldn't have had so much trial and error. I think connection is really helpful. Um, I've found reaching out to the writing community really making me feel less isolated. 
in in that I I now know that everybody else is going through those same processes. <laughs> um, yes, and that a knockback doesn't necessarily mean that your work is not any good. It, it's just finding the right home for your work as well. Exactly. I always tell people: right story, right desk, right time. That sounds like a good a motto to have. <laughs> Well, you have to be persistent, don't you? And you have to have faith that you are doing what you really need to do in terms of learning your craft and putting the best possible story out there. But then it's a lottery. It does seem to be a bit that way. I'm still at the beginning of my writing journey in a lot of ways and um, there's times where I'm like, is this really going to happen? Am I... Am I targeting the right places? Maybe I sh I'm even writing the wrong genre at the moment. <laughs> what are you writing? Uh, I'm doing, I've got picture books. So I've got four manuscripts that I've, I've been sending out into the universe. Um, <sighs> and it's just uh, probably the hardest um, genre to get into because so many people are submitting. <laughs> so, that, that's true. Yes, but you, you don't give up. But the thing is, if you explore some other areas while you keep writing your picture books, then sometimes you can have some success that encourages you to keep going. I found that. I got a lot of rejections, definitely in the first 10 years. And I was writing picture books at the time. But once I started thinking, okay, I'll try writing short stories and poems for magazines, I started getting them published and that gave me the impetus to keep going when I got one rejection after another. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a, a bit why I'm doing the podcast is uh, every month I feel like I'm producing content and feeling creative, whereas if I've written a picture book and I've sent it out into the world, there's not always an outcome. Uh, so. No, and we wait so long and a lot of the time we don't get any response at all and that can be really hard when you're starting out because you've got nothing publishing-wise to look forward to. Mm. It, it's easier later on when you've got books published and you can think, okay, well, that one missed out. I'll just send it off to the next person. But sometimes I still get disappointed if I get rejections, but it's not like it used to be. Mm. I think just having people like yourself um, willing to share your knowledge is really helpful too because you can sort of go, okay, it does take a long time to get where you need to be sometimes. It can be, and everybody's different. I mean, there are some authors who they write their first picture book or their first novel and it really does hit the market and it gets picked up straight away and they're off and running. But it's not like that for most of us, I would say. And it can be difficult to keep producing, to keep being creative. But if that's where your heart lies, then you'll do it anyway. You can't stop. Mm. And how are you finding at the moment just promoting your book at the moment with isolation? Are you finding you're still able to reach out to the world? It's an interesting time. Uh, obviously, uh, there were some writing events that I had been hoping to go to and they've been cancelled. So uh, we're, we're all adapting to online and I'm not terribly focused on how many books I sell or how many readers I reach. I like to put a book out there and trust that it will find the readers 
who are meant to find it. Not the best marketing advice for people, definitely, <laughs> and, and certainly not if you're trying to make a living from it, which at my stage of life I'm not. I'm just enjoying the process and loving making books and writing books and being part of the book writing community. So you can do it for love. Yes, so most people say you shouldn't <laughs> if you really want to do well and be successful. So it's it's personal choice really. And do you have any plots swimming around in your head at the moment? Too many to keep up with. I Every year I, I give myself this commitment that I'm going to finish everything that I've started. And if I finish one or two of those projects, then I think, oh, well, you did good. <laughs> so I've got several half half-finished um, women's fiction novels. Um, I've got a few ideas for more young adult novels. I'm sure that there will be other ideas that will tap me on the shoulder and I will probably have to tell them to go away because I really do need to focus and finish what I've started. And for people looking to buy your books, where can they find you online, Tina? Uh, if you Google Tina Raffa Mulligan, you will get lots of links. At the moment, Book Depository has uh, free delivery to all places around the world, including Australia. I've got an author page on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon Books and just put my name in, all of my titles will come up with various links. Uh, you can go to my publisher, Serenity Press, or Daisy Lane Publishing or Wild-Eyed Press, um, all sorts of places the books are available. I'm just writing all these down. Thank you so much, Tina, for, for being our guest uh, on Totally Lit and um, I'm looking forward to what you have coming out next. Thank you for inviting me and good luck with your own writing. I'm sure it won't be long before you get a contract. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Thank you, Tina. My next guest is Felix Long. Felix, by day, is a technical writer who specialises in bringing scientific research to as wide an audience as possible by breaking complex concepts into their constitute components and reassembling them in a more pleasing form. By night, Felix dons a cape and a mask to write fiction based on solid fact and plausible conjecture. I had a very interesting chat with Felix about some experimental writing, uh, putting short stories into a app that you can download. Um, so here's my chat with Felix. So how are you anyway? Are you well? I'm going as well as can be expected under these very trying circumstances. This... Um uh, start a trainer level on the zombie apocalypse that we're uh, we're working on. So I'm really eager to talk to you about your app, but I actually wondered if you could explain to me um, how it's pronounced. Ah, Sophrosyne rhymes with Hermione. Ah, okay. Um, so this, how long has the app been running for? I launched it, um, oh, just for extra giggles, I decided to launch it on Halloween. I should have known I was biting off more than I could chew there. And it went live uh, 9pm the yep. day before. So <laughs> those goddesses like to make an entrance. <laughs> Definitely. And um, that was our first podcast was on uh, Halloween as well. So there you go. Oh, wonderful. They've got the same uh, birthday. birthday. 
That's exciting. Congratulations to them both. <laughs> so can I just get you to give me a snapshot of what the app is? Right. Well, what I wanted to do with Sofrasini was to address that old bugbear because whenever you mention to someone that you're a writer, people say sort of in an embarrassed and reflexive and uh, defensive kind of way, oh, I love to read, but I've never got time to read. You get that one? Mm. All the time. So I found myself thinking, yeah, sure, you've got time to read, but you just don't spend that time reading. You're sitting on a bus, you know, back when things were normal, and you're spending 20 to 35, 40 minutes a day one way getting to where you're going. You could be using that time to read something interesting. So I thought, okay, what I need to do is engage with people who don't read and in the place where they're likely to be looking for their next uh, boredom fix boredom relieving fix. So I decided, okay, I need to go with short, snappy, short stories. Mm -hmm. Grab people quickly and put them in front of them in some place where they're going to be looking for their next game. So putting it right up and uh, so a bit of a a literary guerrilla campaign. Mm -hmm. So I decided I'm going to compile these into an app, put it into the app store and see how we do. And so did you have to learn how to develop that app yourself? Well, luckily in my uh, day job, my real job, I am an analyst, but previous, prior to that I had been a uh, coder. So it was still a steep learning curve. It was sort of like um, getting the band back together in a way. But um, a whole new set of tools and rules and platforms that I had not previously worked with, but I was quite impressed with myself in that I managed to do it just one step in front of the other, that didn't work, okay, what am I going to try next? That didn't work, okay, what am I going to try next? Mm. Just that sort of the eating an elephant. The of every, every writer. <laughs> oh, yes, eating an elephant one bite at a time. I'm under the impression you may have got a grant to develop the app, is that right? Yes. Yes, can you tell me yes. about that as well? Well, ladies and gentlemen, again, uh, I might be talking about glory days before the fall of a civilization here, but we used to have this wonderful thing called arts grant funding. Mm. Hopefully, when we come out the other side, we will still have it. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. So um, those of you who are listening, I want you to go to your computers. Oh, that's right. You're at your computer. And type in RADF, Regional Arts Development Funding. This is run as a partnership between your local council and Arts Queensland. Arts Queensland gives money to councils based on how much they ask for on a 50-50 kind of uh, funding arrangement. So you need to get to know your council RADF coordinator. Ask them what they're looking for. Because one thing I found when I was interested in getting RADF funding was that writers were very poorly represented. And I was wondering why that was. It was a very simple answer. We just didn't apply. Oh, really? Okay. So a lot of the literature around RADF and its eligibility fund, uh, requirements it does skew the um, the game away from writers but we are not ineligible if you'll pardon the double negative mm. we can be eligible certainly cross-media projects like the one that I've just done software signing in app form they are very attractive because it's art in an innovative kind of way just mm. as poems have uh, transcended their medium and become song lyrics so okay. just pushing that kind of um, Oh, what do you call it? The the bigger the checkbox. So mm. innovation within the arts community was uh, what I was trying to do. And also trying to convince people who didn't read to read. Yes. 
by hitting them up with what they wanted to read, which was short, snappy, interesting, and right where they were going to be looking for their next um, boredom, boredom busting fix. So you had to submit a solid grant application and demonstrate the outcomes of yes. the app? Okay, yes. and obviously they were happy with your submission? Yes, well, it's very interesting timing, actually, because I have just put in my roundup report. So I've crunched all my numbers and it's all been, phew, that's what I was doing over Easter, putting all my receipts in a pile and oh, um, tallying it all together. And The end part of grants where oh, yeah. you, yeah, that's not the fun part at all. <laughs> Not the fun part, but the important thing is that you've got to do a really good job because um, the person who's holding that information has to go and beg somebody for more money. Mm. <laughs> so you've got to do your bit as as an, a state-sponsored artist. You have to have a solid idea. You have to have a costed solid idea. And it should be pointed out that like driving, you don't necessarily get it right first time. Mm. Most of us didn't get our license on the first go. That's true. Yeah, so okay. software signing was my second. Everybody, well, most people are in the I didn't get it the first time club, but I didn't get my first grant application approved. But I got some wonderful feedback saying, that's really interesting, but it doesn't quite meet the criteria for this reason, this reason, and this reason. So I pulled right out, rethought, and went again, and I got over the line this time. Fantastic. That's that's great news. And what has the outcome been for you now? Like, have you been happy with the uptake of people downloading the app and, and uh, reading the stories? Yes, well, I certainly found that it's hard to sell a horse in a fish market. So true. <laughs> yeah, but give it a try anyway. Yes, my sales on the App Store weren't that amazing. But when I just went, ah, uh, you know what, I'm going to try and put a story in the natural home of stories, which is Amazon, it really took off. So I'm very grateful for the opportunity to have produced an app because in its own right and in a CV sense, that was a really awesome thing to do. Mm. And I learned so much. One of the really cool things about developing artistic enterprises in a modern age is that you don't necessarily have to be Oh, an all-singing, all-dancing genius in order to make it happen. People who were designing websites 10, 15 years ago were just geniuses. You know, they're, just, mm. they're the people who didn't quite make the, the NASA um, space program, but they were still you know, super intelligent. My 16-year-old can design a website today. Not that she's not you know, NASA-worthy, but you don't have to be an absolute genius to do things these days. There are services that you can purchase. As long as you've got a really good design, a really good, solid concept, you can buy in the help that you need. So you have mastered the technology. Um, what responses have you had about the actual stories themselves? Oh, yeah. I've had some really good feedback on the stories. Um, the stories themselves are a set of 10. There are actually nine muses. Now, let's see if I can get them all right. There is Calliope. Calliope is the goddess of heroic poetry. Homer would call upon her when he was about to perform. Then there is Thalia. Thalia is the goddess of comedy and agriculture. How the heck do those two things go together? I'm glad you asked. Check it out. Then there is Polyhymnia. Polyhymnia is the goddess of sacred song. And that particular short story happened in a church and it was very gruesome. Ha, ha, ha. Then you've got um, Arato. As the, god, uh, as the goddess's name suggests, she's the in charge of love poetry. There's Euterpe. Euterpe is the goddess of musical instruments. And now I'm going to have to check ahead. Oh, yeah. 
we've got Orion. Orion is the goddess of astronomy because to the ancient Greeks, art and science were very much the same thing. Terpsichore. Terpsichore is the goddess of the dance. Boots and cats and boots and cats and boots and cats. Cleo is the goddess of history. And Melopomene is the goddess of tragedy. And she's the twin to Thalia, the goddess of comedy and for some reason agriculture. So each one of these muses has a gift. Their gift, given to people who are sensitives, people who are respectful of the arts and people who seek divine inspiration would pray to the muses to the uh, if they wanted to write a tragedy for example they would start their work with a, an offering to the goddess Melopomene but I found myself wondering what would the goddesses have thought if they came to us came to us hmm. in this day and age I mean would they be absolutely blown away at the wonderful wealth and breadth of art that we have or would they just wring their hands and say what the heck are you people doing where is the art in all of this so I thought it would be interesting to bring that problem to the table. How do you how do you impress a goddess? It does take me back a little bit to Olivia Newton-John in uh, Xanadu, is that right? Oh, my God, The roller Xanadu, skating yeah. Xanadu. They were, they were <laughs> muses, I'm sure. Go on, really? I yeah. missed that one, unfortunately. Yeah, and she was dancing with uh, Jean Kelly. Um, yeah, just having a bit of a flashback there. <laughs> wow. Uh, you should watch it and check it out. It might... Um, I'm going to have to now. Guilty pleasure. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, so your stories are inspired by the muses, but not direct recountings of their stories. No, it's it's set in the real world, or you know, uh, uh, and uh, and everywhere. And it's a story about um, Detective Hubert Mamone, and he is a detective in the Didymus Police Force. He has a series of bizarre deaths that he has to go and investigate. And they all lead back to him. So I'd each one of the stories. I'd be my shoulder if I was him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Feeling a bit um, guilty when he wakes up on the floor of a department saying, ooh, what happened last night? Ah, no, giving away. But um, the central theme is the goddesses and how angry they are at the paucity of art in this world and that we all have to do better. Mm. And how do you gain the approval of a goddess? through sacrifice. They'd be all very disappointed with my quality of work at the moment. <laughs> so sacrifice is the answer. Yeah, that's what we're going for. So you've got in their myth, you've got history and mystery. That's like yes. nearly three of my favourite things right there. <laughs> yeah, it was certainly very ambitious. And I got some beautiful art done for, by my friend Mia Clark. And one of the most wonderful things about doing one of these RADF projects is that it's very much encouraged that you get in other artists to assist. Yes. Okay. So collaboration. And collaboration is a big buzzword. So please, uh, if you do want to go for RADF, bring a friend or two and be honest about what you can achieve together. Yes. I think that sometimes the initial idea that you have in your head doesn't quite translate at the end sometimes when you've got a, a project. Um, I know with this podcast – I um, it sort of moves and changes with each episode, um, and also in response to who who I'm collaborating with as well. Um, so it 
some things are even better than I imagined and then there's other things that haven't quite uh, worked as I thought that they would. Yes, indeed. Um, most recently, one of the people I love on the internet is The Oatmeal. Mm-hmm. You follow The Oatmeal? Yes. Uh, he did a wonderful thing, which was eight things I learned in the 10 years doing this blog. And the f- He opens with, I wanted to do a list of 10 things, so that'd be really nice, but I could only come up with eight. So inspiration is a slippery sucker. And I thought, <laughs> you've just nailed it right there. <laughs> so true. So true. And so what's next on the horizon for Felix Long? Ah, Felix Long is currently seeking representation for my completed, I do believe, hopefully, novel Habnab. Habnab is an ancient, well, uh, a Middle English word meaning a second chance at luck. The premise of second chance at luck. Oh, yes. So Habnab is sort of like if something's about to go wrong, you shout Habnab and you sort of force it to go right. Is that all I have to do? Give it a go. Habnab. <laughs> yeah. So the basic story behind Habnab, without giving her away too much, is um, Molly and Diego Bertolocchi have come to Ireland in 2008, and they're from Boston. So they've come to Ireland because Molly's people are from Ireland, and they're on their baby moon, and they're sort of wondering what they're going to do next with their lives. And then the answer just comes out of the out of the. Um, the misting rain, because if you've ever been to the west coast of Ireland, you'll know that sensation very well. And there it is, a beautiful castle. But it's not quite a castle. When they look a little closer, it's what was very popular in the Victorian age, a folly, a decorative building that was built largely as a, a, a statement that I've got too much money. So they decide that they're going to buy the folly. They're going to renovate the folly into an amazing trophy home. And that's going to be worthy of the cover of Home Beautiful and it's going to launch Molly's career into a whole new level. Now, Diego is nursing his wounds. He's a PhD student. Well, he's a graduate, but um, his very radical ideas about the way humanity recently evolved and that our cousins, the the, um, Neanderthals, may actually be in our fossil record we consider them to be neanderthals but in our oral history record we consider them to be trolls oh he comes up with that fairly cool idea um and it's laughed out of academia but he says hang on i've got something going here i'll turn it into a novel so (laughs) there we go a bit of an author avatar there and you you have one more book is that right oh yes i have to conquer heaven yes so to cut a long story short too late Habnab, the crux of Habnab is that they're renovating this folly, west coast of Ireland, standing stone circle in the garden. We're just going to move that one stone there and everything will be just perfect. Bum, bum, bum. Didn't so work. No, well, what happens if you, um, if, you, if you violate a standing stone circle? I've never tried it. What no, I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> it's the fae. The fae come after you. And what do the fae love to do? They steal babies okay cool so that's as far as exciting oh it is it is i had a lot of fun writing that one um it's just a matter of how do you open and that's always the that's always the difficult thing as a writer i mean i never start writing a story until i've written the end see that's where i'm stuck i have a a ya novel and i don't know the end yet (laughs) start with the end start with the end and sometimes you could go through like a series of formula ends Mm -hmm. Um, you know, there's the happily ever after, there's the not so happily ever after, there's the up in the air, you know, there's all sorts of things you could try on for size as an ending. 
And then once you've nailed that ending, you can go to the start because you know what the destination is mm. and the journey will be so much more fun. So you've got a bit more structure around your writing by the sounds of it than I'm a little bit haphazard. Ah, yeah. Well, there's, there's sort of two camps, isn't there, in the, the writing community. There's plotters and pantsers. Yeah, I'm a pantser. I never know where I'm going to end up. Go the pantser. <laughs> That's what the first draft is all about. Just go forward. There is a little bit of joy I find, though, in that that I start writing. I think I know what I'm talking about, and then inspiration will strike, and I'm like, oh, I didn't know where that came from. Yeah, and characters. Oh my god, characters! You try and shepherd them, and what, they're like cats. You can't herd them. Mm. So you're saying, right, we're going this way, and they go, no, nope. <laughs> in a completely different direction. So all right, well, I'm following you then. So when Habnab is ready, where can we find that? Ah, well, I'm seeking representation right now, so I'm sending it out to um, to agents because I, my first book, To Conquer Heaven, I made a couple of mistakes when I was trying to submit it. I just went straight to publishers mm. and because you know I didn't want any damn middleman coming in and stealing my money, ha, ha, ha. But um, the problem was if you go directly to a publisher, that's one of the largest slush piles that there is, mm. and – if they don't want it, then if you go to an agent, the agent's going to approach a publisher. So if, there's a, if they've already rejected or you know didn't grab them the first time around, it's a bit of a mistake and a, a bit of a tactical flaw there. Yes. So, yes, not like I've actually succeeded in the journey, but I do know people who have. Um, a An agent is worth getting. Yes, I'm, I'm in the process of trying to get an agent, but I'm trying with my picture books and um, oh. I think that's probably the hardest <laughs> to actually get representation for. I could be wrong. I haven't had much traction with publishers, although I get like, oh, that's a fun premise, but that's about as far as I get. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm sort of following in your footsteps on the, the agent uh, track. Great. Well, let's help each other along. Well, just staying motivated. My This week I've been going, oh, just put everything on hold for a while and try again in maybe six months. But yeah, I'm just finding, as every writer goes through that journey of you've, you've written your work, you're trying to get it out in the world and it's that process of rejections and okay, pick yourself up and, and go again and um, just yeah, learning to be patient and to just not waver from the goal. Like I've got my sights set. I've just really got to just keep on going. But um, I'm in admiration of Felix Long, who has got solid content out there now. So oh, thank you. Oh yeah, my first book, To Conquer Heaven. I loved it. It was just one of the most awesome things that I'd ever written because it was the first thing I'd ever written. But then I got over it because when you write. You think, wee, you look at me, I'm a writer. And then you think, oh, God, who wrote this rubbish once you put it into the drawer for six weeks? <laughs> yes. God, this is so much to, there's so much to, to, uh, to change here. But anyway, I try to be, I try to be supportive and complimentary, I suppose, of the process, but it is a very, very hard road to tread. There's a lot of rejection. And even if you do get through those magic doors, there's not a lot of money on the other side. We're Please don't be thinking. <laughs> Uh, well, yes and no, but you should expect reward because um, we can't get through our days without art. I mean, here we are all sitting at home and if it wasn't for the efforts of artists streaming 
TV shows and songs um, and you know checking into the Louvre to see their online gallery if it wasn't without if it wasn't for art we really wouldn't be doing terribly well mm. not as well as we are that's true and there's mm. sometimes there's just something inside that needs to come out very much so yes. and that's that's the magic that people don't explain when you have written something when you've written a book and it exists outside your person it is a small form of immortality mm. That is something that will survive beyond the, beyond the person who created it. You can take it and put it in a Tupperware container, bury it in the backyard, and you, might, you, my friend, might be the bard of a new golden age. It'll probably happen after we're dead. Isn't that terrible? <laughs> Isn't it? Oh, but we're geniuses, darling. We're never appreciated within our lifetime. Oh, it's so funny. So in terms of your app, do you think that you would do it again? I very much would like to do it again. In fact, I have this whole concept on trying to get off the ground called Sons of Anthology. Sons of Anthology is a series of 24 cartoon characters. So there's Aronson, Benson, Carlson. Davidson, you're picking up the theme by now. Mm-hmm. Each one of those is a little cartoon character. Um, Aronson, I think, is uh, I drew him up as the um, as a Viking, and Benson is a cute little emo with beautiful glasses. And uh, it just made me think of um, SVU. I don't know if you've no, watched sorry, that show. That is this one of the called Benson? <laughs> yes, uh, one of the detectives on that show. Oh, oh well, I better be careful there because I don't want to be here for copyright infringement. <laughs> They're not on yeah. any emo though, so you're fine. <laughs> So the whole idea is that uh, each of those um, anthologies goes out with, well, one of my stories, obviously, but other people's contributions as well. And so clubbing together in a, to a beautiful little gang, we can put together a decent advertising budget. Hmm. And at the end of each of your uh, short stories is uh, also by this author. Okay. So the idea in a marketing sense is that you are leading with your short stories in the hopes of selling your works. Hmm. And I think that's what we all as writers need to be is creative with our marketing um so there's people out there that are running workshops and jumping onto online workshops at the moment in the current climate um but we're all doing our writing and then being creative about other ways to spread our talents so yes and it must be said podcast you're doing it with an app Sounds like you're coming up with new ideas all the time, which is exciting. So is there anything else you would like to share about your work yes, with our I listeners? Just, I would like to say to those who are listening, uh, who are writers, who are thinking about, who are terrified of the idea of marketing, unfortunately, you've got to get over it. You do have to learn how to market. But the good news is there is no secret ingredient. It really is just identifying the target audience, finding out where they hang out, the sort of things that they're likely to want to read and thinking of, from, thinking of it from their perspective. So there is no secret ingredient. You don't have to be a genius to work it out, but there is a lot more art than science involved in marketing. So try everything. Record your results, see what works, and just improve as you go. That's the only advice I've got. Thank you so much, Felix Long. Thank you very much, Kai, and the Totally Lit community. Okay, I thought I'd uh, tell you all about what I've been doing over the last month or two in terms of writing activities. Um, 
The first thing I did was go and see a workshop presented by Alex Adset at the Avid Reader just before isolation restrictions clamped down on us. And that was a very um, interesting and informative uh, workshop, just learning what a literary agent is. And I've now since submitted some work to her, so fingers crossed there. Um, what else have I done this month? Oh, I did a workshop with Michelle Worthington, which was very informative, um, and that was uh, online um, with a group of other people. Um, so if you're looking for some workshops, you can jump across to her website, michelleworthington.com, or you can check out her Share Your Story website as well. What else have I done? I've submitted a couple of competition entries to the through the CEA conference and also signed up for some manuscript assessments. Um, and I've been just smashing out some manuscript submissions to um, publishers when they're open as well. So um, I really haven't produced any new content at the moment though, so I need to sit down and get my thinking cap on and think up some new stories to write about. Um, I usually lean on either my children's life or my own life, um, and I'm just sort of... um, feeling not very creative at the moment. I don't know how anyone else is feeling in this time of isolation. I'm wanting to create, uh, but I'm just feeling because I'm working eight hours a day, but I'm not leaving the house and I'm just not feeling that lightning strike that I sometimes get. Uh, So I'm hoping that uh, soon with some of the restrictions, hopefully lifting that I might be able to have some inspiration again. Um, Anyway, thank you everyone for listening and um, stay safe in these strange times. Thank you.